What's up all you hitchhikers? Welcome back to The Strange Road. We have the part two of Jeff Wilson, Ancient Apocalypse and Serpent Mound. This part two is pretty incredible, guys. We go super deep into all kinds of topics, really heavily focused on Serpent Mound and the whole body of knowledge. Now, Jeff could give probably like a hundred hour presentation on Serpent Mound, uh, which is why this ended up being almost a four hour podcast. So we really wanted to break it up in two parts. Um, it's, uh, it's the whole thing is on YouTube all in one take, which we live streamed. And so uh, in this episode, Jeff talks about uh, Fort Ancient culture the intrusive burial mound culture, the Hopo culture, and the Adena, um, and even the earlier prehistoric people that were in Ohio as well. Um, he also talks about the Serpent Mound impact crater in this episode, carbon dating at Serpent Mound, archaeoastronomy on the site, and we learned a ton in this episode. But really, the biggest thing we learned is that we're really just scratching the surface about the true history of Serpent Mound. And I know Jeff and other researchers will never give up until they get closer and closer to the truth. And I do think that we need all kinds of discipline, all kinds of disciplines to come out here and do research. Uh, come on out. We'll give you tours. We'll hook up with Jeff and we'll bring you guys anywhere you need to go here in Ohio, any ancient site, <clears throat> we would love to show you around. And guys, thank you so much for listening. Um, the YouTube channel's been blowing up, so thanks everybody so much for hanging out with us on our live streams, tuning in to uh, some of the other content we have rolling out, the shorts. We appreciate everybody on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, we're at The Strange Road on pretty much everything. Um, and we appreciate you listening to the podcast side of what we do as well. And you guys have been awesome. Enjoy this episode. We know we did. I just thought that we could maybe cover, for most people, they're generally unaware of, unaware of the ancient Ohio timeline. Sure, The yeah. various cultures of people that have lived in Ohio. I'm there with you. Yeah, let's All see right. this. So why, I, I thought maybe we would start at the bottom and work our way up instead of from the oldest to the newest, um, just so that when we end up at the oldest, we can talk about how that links back into what Graham was saying, uh, about, you know, in ancient apocalypse. But um, the most recent sort of time period that historians and archaeologists have pieced together is from about 1600 to 1673. They call that the proto-historic era. It's about the era that Europeans started to arrive in this area. And so whoever was living here, they call those sort of before the, the modern-day tribal people, right? Okay. Just slightly before that. Okay. And then from about 1100 to 1600, the, the immediate time frame before that proto-historic era, that's the where the archaeologists call the Fort Ancient Era. Okay. And particularly in southern Ohio, these people uh, 
had a particular life way, different things that they would do, how they buried their dead was different, how they, you know, what, what they were eating, how they were growing their food, uh, you know, what, what kind of villages they were building. They okay. had a particular life way, and they call that the four ancient people. It has nothing to do with Fort Ancient, the earthwork. Yeah, so that's always confusing <laughs> to confusing. me because we stopped at Fort Ancient on the way back. Fort from, Ancient yeah. was built by an <clears throat> earlier people about a thousand years before the Fort Ancient, uh, but they found remnants of this culture living inside of Fort Ancient's earthwork, and so they became. This is a this is a terrible practice that archaeologists do. They name the culture after the property or the property owner. Adina was a guy, right? No, no. no. Adina, I'll get to Adina okay. in a second. But um, so Fort Ancient, the earthwork, had already been named that by early settlers. That name got attached to this group of people and their lifeways because they found a, a, a you know, kind of a, a, a village site, so to speak, inside of the earthwork walls. Okay. All right. Um, so it becomes very confusing for the public. Um, before that, from about 600 CE or AD, as some people think, uh, to about 1000 AD, there was a group of people here in Ohio that were known as the intrusive burial mound culture. And there's not been a lot that's known uh, about this group of people other than that they used to bury their dead into mounds that had already been built by earlier cultures. Okay. And they're like, hey, we're going to use Intrusive this Intrusive burial. Right. Yeah, so sure. they're going to bury their, you know, they're probably descended from those peoples. And so they, you know, there's a bit of ancestor, you know, veneration going on yeah. uh, kind of thing. Maybe family burial plots or, you know, who knows what. Sure. So that, that's that, group, that period of time. Prior to them, before the Intrusive Burial Mound culture, uh, from about 100 BC uh, to about 500 AD, that's the period of time that archaeologists have identified as the Hopewell people, or uh, they they're also now kind of trying to get away from that nomenclature, uh, and they're calling this part the Woodland period, okay. more generic term because uh, they. Archaeologists have finally realized how problematic their naming convention has been. Uh, and, you know, identifying a group of people as the Hopewell, for instance, that's named after the farm in which there was a series of mounds that were excavated. And the guy that owned the farm was, was Mordecai C. Hopewell, a former Confederate war soldier. And so they've labeled this whole you know, major culture uh, with after you know, a farmer after some Confederate you know soldier, <laughs> Mordecai Hopewell. You know, it's like ridiculous, right? And so That's bizarre. And so you know, they're trying to move away from that nomenclature, and they're, you know, Good. now it's called the Woodland Period, more generic. And so there's an early, middle, and late Woodland Period. And so um, okay, you know. Uh, it's it's problematic for the Hopewell Culture National Historic Park, mm -hmm. you know, in Chilcothy, run by the National Park Service, because because they understand they now they know the history of how that name came about, right? Um, those earthworks, the Hopewell earthworks specifically, were excavated during uh, they were excavated 
for the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. Really? Uh, in the lead up up to that, um, they paid for all the excavations and all those artifacts from that site. They collected about 400,000 artifacts, Whoa. went on display during the Chicago World's Fair, and that became known as Hopewell's Site, and then that got shortened to Hopewell's. It's the Hopewell's people, and, you know, it was, uh, it was kind of a big deal. You know? That's wild. Um, if you want to go see any of those artifacts, some of those artifacts, a selection of the more amazing ones, are on display at the Chicago Field Museum. That's Chicago, because that museum ago. was the uh, sort of outcome of the, the Chicago World World's Fair. Okay, okay. Everything that went on display, uh, you know, for the Chicago World's Fair, be- got incorporated into the Chicago. Oh, museum. cool. All right. So. Now, is that the one that you walk up and it's just a, a blank, giant field? There's actually no earthworks. Well, yeah, sort In of. It, there's, there's there's a plaque <laughs> where it shows where they used to be. Yeah, there's when, very little remnant of. I've what's gone there. out there. I'm like, there's yeah. nothing here. Well, if you go up and hike the the hiking trail up onto the ridge that kind of overlooks that big field, yeah, some of the earthen walls that are up there are still relatively intact. Yeah, because they weren't farmed over down below. But that was a big site. It is enormous. Huge. It's absolutely enormous. Uh, just gigantic. Like half site. moon hedges, and that's where the and- largest. Hopewellian earthwork mound, uh, it, you know, was excavated. Um, and it's been okay. excavated repeatedly. The, you know, uh, Warren K. Moorhead, on behalf of the Chicago, uh, you know, World's Fair, excavated. In fact, Putnam was hired by the Chicago World's Fair to organize all the <laughs> excavations, and he hired Moorhead to do those excavations. So Putnam was involved in those excavations. Um, he also sent archaeologists all across North America and South America, and they did excavations all over the place, and all of that stuff went on display at the Chicago World's Fair. Wow. Gosh, can you yeah. imagine seeing that? Yeah, so, um, and, uh, so before the Hopewell... The immediate period before them, from about 1200 BC to about 100 uh, AD, there's a little bit of overlap between the two. Uh, that's the Adena era, the Adena people. They're named after a mansion. Right, in Chillicothe. <laughs> so there was a mound on a property uh, that was named by one of the early governors of Ohio, Thomas Worthington, in Chillicothe. Worthington, he built Ohio. a mansion there. He named his mansion Adena. This mound was on the Adena property. They wanted to level the mound in the early 1900s to do some farming there. And so the Ohio uh, Historical Society uh, went in there and excavated it, and it became known as the Adena Mound. And that became that then became associated with the culture of people that built those. Hmm. So that is the Adena culture named after the mansion. Yeah, this is terrible nomenclature. Yeah, like yeah. brutal, <laughs> like just, ridiculous. Just bad. <laughs> yeah. I think that would have corrected itself over a hundred years. Yeah, like, ah, what do you want to call it today? Uh, how about <laughs> Doritos? Yeah, the Dorito culture. Like right, right. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Right. So prior to that. That's before the Woodland period. Um, There's an immense amount of time from 8,000 B.C. to 1,000 B.C. That's known as the Archaic Era. And you can sometimes find subdivisions in there, early, middle, and late Archaic. Uh, Once you get into the late Archaic, there's a kind of an interesting, what you might call a proto-culture, what they call the Glacial Cane people. 
that not much is known about them other than they used to bury their dead into geologic features known as glacial canes. Okay. So the glaciers came into Ohio, and when they retreated, they left these giant piles of gravel, essentially. Yeah. And those are called glacial canes. And for whatever reason, these people would de- bury their dead into them. They would cover them with red ochre sometimes. Um, there was some ceremonialism there. They appear to be like the early forerunners of the Adena. Um, so you're seeing like sort of the beginnings of how they kind of came about. Gotcha. And um, so before 8000 BC, going as far back in time as you want, um, probably at least to 18,000 BC, that is the Paleolithic era. And uh, that is where you get into what Graham is talking about. I was just going to say, yeah. So once you get into, you know, the uh, Younger Dryas is in this period of time. And before that, you have, you know, the last glacial maximum, uh, which, you know, extended almost to Serpent Mound, but not quite. That's wild. Okay, so that glacier came down and stopped just to the north of Fort Hill, which is about five miles north of Serpent Mound in air distance. Okay, so that glacier stopped. And I've told this story, I used to tell the story when we used to take people uh, on tours of the crater for Geology Day. People always ask the question, well, were there people here back then? Well, yeah. Yeah, there are archaeological sites that date back to the Paleolithic here in Ohio. In fact, there is one in Adams County, one of the largest Paleolithic sites east of the Mississippi River. It's right along the Ohio River, down on Ohio State Route 52, down there. There used to be a historical marker. I think it got stolen a couple years ago. Uh, it's known as the Sandy Springs Archaeological District. Okay. And back in the 70s, uh, people were finding paleolithic artifacts in these farm fields down there along the ohio river and they went down there at the ohio historical society did a shovel test in which they did this big area of basically digging just barely into the ground and see if they could find artifacts and they found tons, tons of, of paleolithic and archaic era stuff down there it's where brush creek empties mm. into the ohio river these fields down at the mouth of the of brush creek well, you take Brush Creek, you just go all the way up to Serpent Mound, and, you've, and you know, Putnam, when he excavated at Serpent Mound after Harvard acquired the property, there are artifacts that date back to the Paleolithic in the collection that, Harv- at, that Putnam excavated. So we know that people from the Paleolithic were there. Right. Right? At Serpent Mound. Right. Whether and we're not saying Serpent Mound was built there at that time, right? But people were there. People, people were, were there. leaving that. Right. Could have been fact, a basic every ceremonial single spot. One of these cultures going all the way back to the Paleolithic left artifacts at Serpent Mound. Putnam collected from every single one of these cultures. So that was discussion that Graham and I had prior to America before. Was Serpent Mound is way way older than as an archaeological site than what people are crediting it for. Um, it dates all the way back to the Paleolithic. Even if the mound itself wasn't there, there Correct. was ceremony, there was something special. People were living there. People right. were there. And so, it was the impact crater? Well, so hmm. people coming up from the south, from that Paleolithic site on the, on the Ohio River, 
if you're coming up from the south, you would reach the southern rim of the crater just, if you're following Brush Creek, just south of Serpent Man. Serpent Man is in the southwest section of the crater. You can stand on the rim of the crater, see Serpent Man down there. From that southern rim, you can also see Fort Hill in the distance, five miles to the north of Serpent Mound. And right there, just to the north of Fort Hill, was where the glacier stopped. Right. So if you were from a person from yeah. the Paleolithic and you got to the crater, you would stand there, you'd see this giant circle in the ground, and then beyond that, just ice. Two miles of ice going up wow, into the sky. Oh, dude. Okay. What? It Serpent, was still there. Serpent no, no, Mound. That much ice that tall? Yeah. Serpent Mound <clears throat> and that crater was literally the last place on Earth that you could incredible. go going north in Ohio at one point, right? So, so of course there were sites there. Possibly. They're I making mean, it all the way up. Oh, we're good. Let's settle here. Well, you can't go any further. Can't go yeah. Any further. yeah, exactly. Right. So I always try to invoke that imagery for people to understand that the environment has changed dramatically over the course of this human history that we can document. Right. Uh, it's changed repeatedly. You had the major catastrophe during the Younger Dryas, the worldwide catastrophe. That affected these people, Right. But that's not talked about in the archaeological literature. Nobody identifies these sorts of big ideas. Yeah. Graham does. Graham, yeah. you know, kind of understands that. But it's not really discussed much in the archaeological literature. Right. Uh, you know, the fauna, the, the animals that people were hunting were wildly different, right? Most of those big, giant animals right. are extinct. The megafauna. The megafauna. All died you know, off. What people were eating, Woolly what people rhinos. were doing, what, what kind of rocks they were, you know, building for their tools and stuff. All that's different. And that's thousands and thousands and thousands of years before you get to the woodland period. Right. 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 right? So this is a period of human history that we know that barest, tiniest fraction of. Remember, this is these are people just like you and me, same IQ bandwidth as you and me. They're modern, They're modern anatomical humans, humans yeah. modern humans. We don't know the tiniest fraction of our own history. That's very scary. Okay, that's so that's strange. what Graham is saying about we're a species with amnesia. Yeah, we don't get it. We right. don't understand it. How much of that heritage can we put back together? Why is that important for us today? Well, right? how many people were left after if the, these impacts, which, like you said, the Younger Dryas, it's documented. These yeah. The geology Randall Carlson talks about where these massive meltwater sheds come down. How much there's some of that, data there's would some of be that around left? Serpent Mount. So, how much would be left for those people to put the pieces back together and then have their oral tradition as well to continue on? Right. So, like... We don't have the information here in America like we do in ancient Egypt or even Mexico where the pyramids right. are all still there. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. I feel like they have a better grasp of that history in, in North America. It's just a giant mystery still. Yeah. So in, if you look at USGS uh, maps around Serpent Mound, if you look just to the south uh, east of Peebles, which is about five, six miles from Serpent Mound. Yep. Um, there's a f huge flat area before you get to the big hills of the Appalachians, right? The eastern escarpment or the western escarpment of the Appalachians. Um, 
That's called Bacon Flats. Bacon Flats is there because of the meltwater from the glaciers. That was a huge glacial lake. There's also one, if you go up to Fort Hill, just to the northeast of Fort Hill, there's also another giant area. It looks, you look on the map, it says flats, flats. There are a couple of these areas that are called flats. These are all remnants of these glacial meltwater lakes. Hmm. Okay, And even Brush Creek has changed its flow. Uh, there's an old USGS map I came across from the early 1900s that showed that, uh, you know, I'm sure if you have any geological knowledge about ancient Ohio, there used to be something called the TA's River in the TA's Valley. If you go and look on a, on a map of south central Ohio, you have uh, Scioto River that comes down through, you know, Columbus, yep. through Circleville, through Chilcothy, all the way down to Portsmouth. <clears throat> but if you look at the section between Waverly and Portsmouth on a, you know, I don't know if he can pull this up on, uh, on Google right now and just pull, it, pull up a Google image of it. You can see that to the east of the Scioto River, there's this weird kind of curvy area that doesn't have any trees on it that goes all the way down to the Ohio River. That's the old TA's Glacial River Valley. Interesting. And that river was an enormous, enormous river, way bigger than the Scioto is today, right? And that went through the valley where, you know, Sipe Mound is and Spruce Hill and the Bomb Earthworks. That valley is super wide. Remember? Great- oh, when you drive down into Sipe? Right. It's crazy. If you've ever driven from the east, uh, the west side of Sipe, yeah. like if you come in from the 71 site, yeah. uh, 71 side, but if you come in on the other side, the east side, it's wild. Remember driving down? Uh, uh, I'm thinking of Fort Ancient as well, but but Sipe, it's just a really strange it's a, geology. It's a very wide valley yeah. with a tiny little creek that runs down through. That's Pink Creek right yeah. today. But that was a very wide river. Remember Randall Carlson talked about this in Ancient Apocalypse in his video talking about the that the valley is way bigger than the river right. because in the distant past there was this Meltwater massive shirt. amount of water that used to go through there that carved out the valley. Carved the valley right? out, yeah. Okay. So that's the landscape that we also had, although it's not necessarily connected to a mass flash flooding event like out there like he was talking about in the Scablands. The Scablands. Right. But this was, you know, the meltwater was actually carving it out because the rivers were so much bigger. Right. Hmm. So we are, we don't often, at least in these scientific disciplines, geology is its own siloed institution. Archaeology is, is its own siloed institution. And they don't like to cross into each other's territory right. and talk about each other's stuff. It happens in all scientific disciplines. Dr. Robert Schock and the Sphinx. Yeah. Was in the right. 90s. Right, oh, exactly. John Anthony yeah. West and, and Graham, so and that was a giant. It's not often that like, you can cross disciplines and do this interdisciplinary work. Right. One of the things I did in the college. The system's not set up for that. Right. One of the things I did in college was a lot of interdisciplinary stuff. Um, you know, my, my master's thesis that I did on mapping the uh, data coming from the Lunar Prospector mission on the surface of the moon, I had to work with the geology department in the earliest days of GIS to be able to map that stuff and understand what the geology of it was that cross-discipline with 
astronomy, right? So right. we had to kind of cross those disciplines. So I'm, I'm comfortable doing that. I don't care right. about these freaking silos. I'm not in academia any longer. I used to teach physics and astronomy, and I got out of academia and went into you know, the private sector. Right. So I don't really care one bit about ruffling one discipline's toes versus another. I don't, give, I don't care about any of that stuff. So, you know, you have to try to look at the whole body of knowledge, whether it's, you know, botany or... Well, it's all part of the same picture. Right. You, yes, exactly. You can't it's an integrated whole. one tree out of all It's an the integrated forest. whole, and science tends to slice it up into little bits. And so you want to try to reconstruct it to get a better understanding of the whole. Well, and and I think that's compartmentalized because, because you have an expert that focuses so well, heavy in this one particular yeah. focus. And that's the thing. You're drilling and down so far, you don't see often the times. scope. Oftentimes, you're, you're, yeah. You're, it's, not, it's not part of their you know, field of study. Right? I mean, it's so. the same thing in medicine. I mean, you're, So you're, if you have another yeah. department coming in and saying, hey, we're seeing this, this, and this, well, pfft. No, you're not, because the archaeology, the pot shards or whatever it is, <clears throat> right. isn't showing that data. What are you talking about? There's no such thing as a culture that was advanced that yeah. predated the Younger Dryas. I, I Where's the a, evidence? I sat in on a Zoom presentation yesterday at the Smithsonian talking about the origins of peoples in the United States. And the, the, the presenter from Kansas, University of Kansas, um, she was a geneticist. So she's talking about all of the new genetic data findings that they're, you know, that her discipline is looking at. But she acknowledged that, well, based on what we see in the genetics, this is what the timeline says it should be. But then there hmm. was this discovery at White Sands National Park that says that, well, there's all these footprints that they found. And they excavated all these, you know, footprints, human footprints of, you know, adults and children walking together across this area and they've carbon dated that to about 5,000 years older than what the genetics story is saying. How do you square that? Right? So there's a lot of more interdisciplinary stuff that needs to happen to right. really understand what the true picture is. And we just like collectively, I'm saying the collective, we only know the very tiniest fraction of the stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so this slide that you put up um, is a project that I did uh, for this Superman Chronicles book, which which will be out. This will be a chapter in the book. Um, it's often claimed that Serpent Mound is unique. It's it's there's nothing else like it. And it's sort of true and sort of not true. Um, over the course of my research over the last couple of decades, I have collected about 100 examples of serpent effigies across uh, North America. And that's what this map is showing is all of the other serpent effigies in North America. So the green are ones made out of earth and soil. All of the white ones that you see there are made out of stone. And then there's a couple of brown ones in the middle. Those are serpent intaglios. An intaglio is almost like a reverse mound where they've dug the oh. shape into the ground rather than build a mound It's up. a negative image. It's like a negative image, yeah. right? Yeah, okay. So uh, intaglio. And so there's a couple of those out in Kansas. Um, and so this is an in incomplete map, I believe. 
but it's the most comprehensive one that I think has been done. No one else has even attempted anything like this, as far as I could tell. Um, and so I was able to map as many of the references that I could find. What is the variance on the design from Serpent to Serpent? They're all individually bit. unique. Okay. Um, however, they many of them have a lot of co common uh, attributes. So, for instance, many of them have astronomical alignments incorporated into their design. Okay. Many of them often have the triangle bit for the head, and some have a kind of an oval in front of that uh, head shape. Some don't, some do. Um, they are often found in similar locations up on the tops of plateaus uh, so that you can kind of get a better view of the sky, I think. Yeah. Um, so I think if you forward real mm -hmm. quick, there's a listing there by state of how many uh, per state that I was able to map. So oh, wow. if you can pick your that. state out, you know, uh, Wisconsin has the most, um, but uh, you can see all the different ones there. And, and there are so many of them that have now been destroyed um, it's and almost none of these have been carbon dated. Um, I would say uh, I think there's only two Serpent Mound in Adams County, and then there's a Serpent Mound up in Ontario that those two have been carbon dated. I don't think there, oh, there's one other one. There was one down in Florida, and actually, the Florida one is the oldest. Um, hmm. In fact, it's about it was carbon dated about I want to say about. 3,000 years older than Serpent Mound in Adams County. Well, it's the closest to Mexico, too, and you know, there's a, you see a lot of serpent iconography um, in sure. Mexico and all the way down in right. South America, so. Yeah, so kinda... uh, you know, and obviously, if you remember your ancient apocalypse, uh, during the last glacial maximum, there was so much uh, water taken out of the oceans that created the glaciers that water levels were lower by like 400 meters yeah. right, right? right so right. so the area around florida all the way to the bahamas was land yeah. <laughs> right and you know there's like connected a, there's like a 200 mile continental shelf all along the east coast <clears throat> that was not underwater God, and again if you want there. to understand the history of this continent you better start doing underwater archaeology oh, because yeah. they're interested in pirate most, booty right and, and and there's almost none of that that's treasure. ever been done it's very, very tiny little fractions of right. underwater archaeology that's been done. Right. So, and when when people talk about, hey, we know what the history of this continent is, I'm no. telling you, you just don't. No. We don't. I we know the tiniest that. little bits of pieces right. of it. So, man. All right. So, this image is uh, an image that I put together in 2007. So it's been a while. Um, this is the first LIDAR map that was done of an archaeological site in Ohio. I'm not an archaeologist, obviously. Um, I get my degree, I, as I said before, was in remote sensing. I learned that uh, the Ohio Department of Transportation received a grant from the federal government to do a pilot project of using LIDAR to map the elevation of all of the state highways. Okay. And State Route 73 goes right by Serpent Mound, and I thought, gosh almighty, I wonder if they captured the data of Serpent Mound with sure LIDAR. Yep. Um, now, 
there were very few archaeologists at that time that were using LIDAR for archaeology, but the technology is such that essentially you fly a plane over and you shoot a laser beam down to the ground and it reflects some of that material, some of that back up to a sensor in the plane. And every point on the ground that it reflected off of, it gives you a latitude and longitude and elevation, and it kind of can tell you what the material was that it reflected off of. So did it reflect off of trees, off of buildings, off of a roadway? You can then, from the data points, go in there and remove the data points that you don't want to see. That's cool. So you can remove all the trees, wow. which is what I did here. And that, allow you, that allows you to see sort of what the landscape looks like without having to fight through all the trees, right? Which is what they're using down in uh, South America and the Amazon. Absolutely, And right. they're finding all these massive cities. They're exactly. just combing back all right. the trees. So, Boom, there they are, pyramids everywhere. Yeah. So I presented this material um, at a conference of... It's the annual conference of the Hanwakan Center for Prehistoric Astronomy and Cosmology and Landscape Studies. Uh, they're up in Wisconsin, so I went to Wisconsin and I presented this material in 2007 in August. Um, and this LIDAR data study uh, revealed a number of things about Serpent Mound that people had not realized before. And... Um, so this was, you know, kind of a landmark thing. And after I showed this material to uh, Bill Romain, William Romain, um, he had put together a project known as the Serpent Mound Project. They had gotten a permit from the Ohio Historical Society to do some uh, excavation work and some other archaeological work at Serpent Mound, some okay. remote sensing studies in 2011 and 2012. That was when that project ran. And so I showed them this material. They were about ready to do a new map of Serpent Mound using the traditional survey and methods. You get out the little tripod with the camera, and you, shoot, you look at somebody holding a pole in the distance. You figure out what the elevation was. And I asked him, you know, how many data points are you going to collect for this map? And he says, well, it's going to be the most comprehensive map. It's gonna, <laughs> we're going to spend all weekend out here. We think we'll collect about seven or 800 data points. I said, well... See, I don't know if you can see at the bottom of the screen here, this map right here has about 83,000 data points. Wow. And it was accurate to within about three or four centimeters. You can actually see the asphalt pathway going around the, the yeah. serpent. Yep. I said, uh, I don't really think you need to do that work. But they did it anyways. But, uh, but that, that, the two guys, uh, Dr. Jared Burks and Dr. Bill Romain, they were like, what is this technology? And then they LIDAR, yeah. they dove into it, and they started to produce papers using the same data that I was using from Ohio Department of Transportation, and they started doing other sites. Now, I did, I think, about 60 archaeological sites in Ohio. I gave a presentation in 2011 uh, showing all kinds of LIDAR stuff uh, about not just Serpent Mound, but all these other sites yeah, yeah. Um, showing you know, what could be accomplished and what you could see. And uh, so, you know, it's a bit of, again, this, this technology was not a tool for archaeologists. It's outside of their discipline. This is one of those interdisciplinary things. If, if other people that had GIS background and this ability to do remote sensing mapping came along and showed the value of using tools like this to archaeologists, and then they adopted it after the fact. 
I mean, this seems like why would you not want this as I mean well again it's, it, it's it, these these different academic disciplines are all siloed yeah right? so it kind of reminds me of the Jurassic Park scene when they shoot the sensor in the ground and he can see it and he's like <laughs> I'm out of a job now like I don't need to go bushwhacking through a jungle to find this you know maybe to get to it right. yeah but yeah to that's, see that's it see, and find see, it uh, Bill Romaine's project in 2011 that's about four years after I did this they um, used uh, a <coughs> magnetometer to to look at what was in the ground. Dr. Jared Burks was an okay. expert in that, and he had a magnetometer, so he did a magnetometer survey. Um, Romaine brought in experts from Indiana University, William Monahan and uh, Ed Herman, who did a electric resistivity survey, which could go look deeper into the ground. Okay. They did some limited uh, work with a ground-penetrating radar. Um, and that project... Uh, amazing project. Uh, you know, Romain and his team did the most amazing work. Uh, best archaeological work that's been done in Serpent Mound since Putnam, for sure. Wow. And they uh, got a permit to do a whole series of core samples throughout the body of the serpent. So there'd only been one modern excavation into the body of Serpent Mound. That was done by Dr. Brad Lepper from the Ohio Historical Society in uh, 1991-ish, I think. Um, And he dug the bend of the serpent that points towards the uh, sunset of the vernal equinox and the autumnal equinox. So that center bend that points to the west. Okay. They dug a trench through that. It's actually kind of like the lowest part of Serpent Mound. They relocated a trench that Putnam dug back in the 1880s, and then they believed that they expanded it by a couple of inches on either side. And then they got three little bits of carbon, about enough to fill a thimble, that they had carbon dated. That was Leper's project. Um, and he got back three carbon dates. And from that study, they rewrote all of the signage at Serpent Mound, uh, you know, rewrote the historical marker and said, based on the carbon date that Leper found, it's Fort Ancient. Okay. Now, if you remember the timeline, what was the Fort Ancient? Fort timeline? Ancient was pretty recent. So 1100 right? AD to, to about 1600 yeah. AD. So that's the Fort Ancient era timeline, right? <coughs> so the three carbon dates that Leper got was. Uh, 1000 AD, 1000 AD, 800 BC. And he stuck with the 1000. Yeah, but that's still 100 years before the earliest Fort Ancient date that anybody else had ever found. I see. This doesn't make any sense, right? Right. But that redefined the narrative of Serpent Mound, that study. Okay. Now, what Romaine did was they did a whole series of cores from the top of the mound all the way down to the rock. And they did 17 cores along the entire body of the serpent. And they, caught, they were able to create a soil profile for the right. whole body of the serpent, all the different layers. Yep. They could see the uppermost layer that Putnam created when he reconstructed Serpent Mound after his excavations. What Putnam did was he scraped up all the soil, sorry, uh, all the soil around the mound itself and piled it up and amplified the size of Serpent Mound. 
and he made some design feature changes around the head and the oval. You can still see where, like, the horns used to be. Yes. The little... And right, the and the lidar somewhere. reveals right. where those early features on the used side to, of the head. He didn't yes. add those back. Yeah, yeah. No, he didn't. Right, uh, but he so amplified the size of the mount. So it turns out, based on the coring data that Romaine got, was that the two Fort Ancient dates that Leper got were from the era area Putnam. of Putnam's yeah. backfill. Well, yeah, where he scraped up all the dirt and put it up on top. Only dig this deep. <laughs> well, no, they, they dug a full trench, but they just widened it by a couple of inches. Uh, but the, those two dates were from the Putnam backfill area. The 800 B.C. date was way down lower, bottom, yeah. probably from the core of the mound. Right? So Romaine got a series of carbon dates. The Friends of Serpent Mound actually paid for half of all the carbon dates. Uh, a few other organizations tipped it. Ohio Historical Society did not contribute to uh, that carbon dating study. Um, and Romaine's team found that there was sort of a median age. Uh, they found seven different locations of the very bottom layer of where the mound was constructed on seven bits of carbon. And these different cores came back with a median age of 321 B.C. That's Adena era. That's also the same as the 800 B.C. date that that Lapper threw out. Right. Right. But it's Adena era. Right. Now, we know that there's a big Adena mound right next to the parking lot because that was excavated by Putnam. And they found people at the very bottom that had Adena artifacts associated with the burial. Kind of makes sense. None of those burial mounds have ever been carbon dated. They've never done any genetic studies on any of the people that were removed from those mounds. All the people that were removed from the excavations that Putnam did... They're all sitting in a warehouse at Harvard University at the Peabody Museum. Um, you know, the Friends of Serpent Mountain has advocated for about 15 years now for the repatriation of those people. Yes. Um, they've never done a single scientific study uh, since Putnam recovered all that stuff on any of the artifacts, on any of the people, on anything. How and why? Isn't they NAGPRA just, just that – wasn't that supposed to bring the bones if, back to – If a tribe claims – if a tribe makes a claim. Right. But no tribe has made a claim. And Wait, there's so. also kind of this weird loophole in NAGPRA that, uh, that a lot of the museums uh, like to use. They call the remains culturally unaffiliated, which means they can't – trace a descent to a modern tribe to give it back to them. There's a gap in between their tribe and the ancient Right. And so, you know, there's this nag per fight that is going on. For instance, uh, you know, Harvard was called out. There was, uh, in fact, this was a a study that uh, Bill Romaine shared with me. Um, The Southeastern Archaeological Conference has a quarterly journal that they put out and last year was the 30th anniversary of NAGPRA the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act and they hired uh, an archaeologist from the Creek uh, tribe down south to write an article about the outcome of NAGPRA after 30 years and he had a graphic in his article that showed the top 13 worst offenders for compliance with NAGPRA. Okay. Harvard was fourth on the list. Third on the list was the OHC, was the Ohio Historical Society. Uh, they're sitting on over 7,000 sets of human remains. Um, 
the Harvard had something like 6,000 sets of human remains, many of them from Ohio, from from the excavations that Putnam did in Ohio. From this those is all very years, wild. Right? So the, the, the people who are in charge, uh, you know, aren't giving the stuff back. And, uh, you know, the OHC is working with a consortium of 40-some tribes now to try to determine what to do with a lot of these remains. Their current Good. idea is they want to have a giant mass burial somewhere around Columbus somewhere. Put them all in one spot? Yeah, they're just going to you know, 7,000 sets of human remains and one big giant burial. I mean, aren't they cataloged at least to see where they came from and then they could bring them back to where they the, well, are originally from? That would be, that would be, if, see, in Ideal. my view, that's logical to in me. In my view, see, the, you got to understand, these institutions, I'm having a tough time. These <laughs> archaeologists, these, uh, these institutions that have archaeological remains, like the OHC, these private corporations. Is their or treasure? Is it like yeah, their property, okay. right? The, the OHC, you know, had all of these artifacts and all of these human remains. They have a, a monetary value associated with them. They're on their balance sheet, right? And so when a tribe comes to them and says, we, wanna, we want you to repatriate that, that has to come off the corporate balance the sheet. Balance sheet right? Wait, I, explain that to me. What do you mean it has a balance? How does it have a value if they don't use it? For well, it's part of artifacts their are a collectible overall... artistic thing and but, people uh, buy and sell artifacts but all can the time. how history connections sell them <clears throat> oh they've can harvard sell them they could if they want it how they're not theirs they own them they own they own them. they're they're their property they're grandfathered in right? as property so they for 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 the last century or so, so they have considered those sets of human remains that they've excavated as their property right well to me that's that's a human rights issue you can't own other people. I don't yeah. care if they're alive or dead. You can't own them as property. Right. You dug right? them up out of their place of burial. Right. That'd be like going to the Casella Cemetery in a thousand years and someone digs up your grandma or your grandpa. 100%. And they're like, we own this. 100%. Right. When, when, when I was a volunteer in the earliest days back in the early 2000s, you know, we asked, well, who's buried in these mountains? I said, nobody's buried in these mountains anymore. What do you mean? Oh, that was all excavated by Harvard. They're all at the Peabody Museum. You're like, what? Why? Why aren't they buried back where they came from? Like, I understand it's the nature of scientific study. It's been 140 study, years. But yet, well, you know, it... Leave exactly. it how you found it. It's been more than a century. It's crazy. I don't, there's, no, there's no statute of limitations on doing scientific studies. But, hey, you know, like... It's time to return these people back right. to where they came but from. But it's out right. of sight, out of mind. It's in the basement somewhere. It's like, if it's not in the public yeah. consciousness. Yeah, OHC has a huge warehouse. I've been in the warehouse. <laughs> it's huge. They had a huge warehouse full of, you know, artifacts and human remains. And it's it's unbelievable. I mean, they're literally sitting up. What's pile the of bones? It's huge. What do you think the percentage of those artifacts have been studied and cleaned up and looked at? It's just well, enough. okay, I don't know what the percentage is. I know that they have. Tens of thousands of artifacts. What I can tell you about Serpent Mounds artifacts, since Putnam's excavations and all of those artifacts went to Harvard, there was an excavation, a major excavation that happened at Serpent Mound in the late 1980s. They, they put in a drinking fountain near the picnic shelter. So, so they had to run a water line. Yep. To the drinking fountain. Yep. And so they ran the water line from Ohio State Route 73 or down near where the house was, the caretaker house was, across 
the grass, uh, you know, to the picnic shelter. They did block excavation along that entire line. And the OHC has never written a report about it. I did find that there was an undergraduate student at Ohio University oh, excellent. that was assigned as a public service project to go help out the OHC for a semester. She went to the OHC, and the archaeologist at the time, Martha Otto, assigned her to this giant pile of boxes in a, in a room in a corner that was filled full of artifacts that they found during the waterline excavation. 10 years after that excavation had happened. And so this girl, young student, uh, spent an entire semester trying to piece it all back together and in the end wrote a 100-page-plus report talking about the 10 to 12,000 artifacts that were found during that excavation. And still to this day, OHC has never written a report, never made any of that material public as to what was found. Now, she included photographs of many of those in her report, which I found in a, you know, the library at OSU. But, mm. but this is the kind of stuff that you deal with. They're is there a corporation. Any, I would love to talk well, Is there to any way to go to the Ohio History Connection and say, hey, I know this happened. I know it's real. So about, Where is this? about five years ago, two retired anthropologists did exactly that. But what they studied was only the pottery shards that were found during that excavation, and they issued an internal private report, which I was able to uh, get. But that is not for public consumption. Gotcha. So, you know, that material is, it's just... That's a gold mine of data, man. It's, it's very difficult to get these people to share this information. For instance, I mentioned Dr. Jared Burks. He did a magnetometer survey of Serpent Mound for Romaine's project, <clears throat> uh, Serpent Mound project. And he uncovered one of the most amazing uh, archaeological finds about Serpent Mound that's happened in the past century. He found that on the northeast side of Serpent Mound, just behind the head, there used to be another bend in the serpent. Hmm. It's no longer there. And so Romaine and his team did, a, did an excavation trench to confirm the magnetometer data, and that was published in their official science you know, uh, publication. The bend would have come out and hit that true north line uh, to yes. the left? Uh, no, curved uh, up, up and then up on the, the right side. Oh, okay. um, if I had my laser, I'd point out, uh, or... You got a laser? I don't know if you can laser point on television. Do you see on the north? Okay, so when you're looking at Serpent Mound here, you have a north-south line. That's the red line. Yep. Just to the right of that where it intersects the head of the serpent, there's that little round thing. Yeah. That's a little mound that used to be attached to Serpent Mound. Just below that where the neck of the serpent is, Mm -hmm. that is where the bend was. I see. I see. So that would have been eight bends? Or how it would many? have been an, addition, an additional bend. And so uh, after Burks did that, the Ohio History Connection hired Burks to do a full magnetometer survey of the rest of the interior of the park that is you know, publicly accessible you know, outside of the tree line. And uh, he, they paid him $38,000 for that magnetometer survey. He presented them after several years with the final report, and that is not publicly accessible. So, again, 
if you why it's privately owned. IP. It's a it's, it's intellectual property. Yeah, I mean they're, they're a corporation. It's their private property. They can do whatever they want with it. I've been told that specifically by their CEO. I've been in meetings with their former CEO. You know, he every time it was, well, we own Superman. It's our private property. We can do whatever we want with it. So you know, I mean. We, I've heard that repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly from the audience. But again, it was established for the people originally. Like yeah. When it, the Public park like forever, like, right? Like what Public we went through forever. earlier. And obviously, you know, again, these were ancient people, very super intelligent ancient people. And that's right. You know, somebody built it. It was a communities at one point. And over the years, like you, you talked about the invasive uh, mound. Uh, mound culture, culture. Mound, yeah. and so maybe people were coming from throughout different times and rebuilding it and adding to it, right. and maybe it so the fell ar- into disrepair. The, and- the archaeologist that did that waterline <coughs> excavation was fired by the OHC. So whose is it really? Why? I don't know. Uh, but before he it was fired, during that excavation, there was a Adams County historian that volunteered on the project. And he wrote an article for his local history magazine in Adams County that is the only published record of that waterline excavation. He, sh- he had some photographs of the excavation, and he interviewed the um, archaeologist at the time, a guy by the name of Don Beer. And he, Beer, said that when they ran that, they did that excavation of that waterline, down in the area where there are three big depressions in the ground near where the gatehouse is and the parking lot is. For many, many years, the Ohio Historical Society had a sign out there that called those depressions borrow pits. Well, that meant that they believed that those depressions were made from the dirt that was borrowed from that area to build Serpent Mound and the other mounds. Okay. Okay. That's actually not the case, but... That's what they believed at the time, and they had that sign up there. Well, when they ran the water line, they went in between where those pits are, those depressions are, and the parking lot. And that's where Don Beer said they found the highest concentration of artifacts. And he was super excited at the time because, for the most part, they were intrusive burial mound culture artifacts. And there's never been an intrusive burial mound culture site outside of what's being found in burial mounds. And so he believed that this was a super important thing for archaeology because they could learn more about the intrusive burial mound culture. Well, now nobody knows anything about that because the only evidence that we have for any of that comes from this interview before the guy got fired, and they never wrote the report. So, you know, it's like trying to find these bits and pieces to try to understand what the true story of Serpent Mountain is. It's very challenging. It's just really sad. How do you not just go crazy, Jeff? (laughs) How do you not just come out? It's difficult. So rabbit hole just keeps going. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to forward through this, but um, I think this was the one that just had animations talking about different nomenclature yeah or, oh no this is this is the astronomical actual alignments. astronomical alignment so hit way too far no past. that's okay okay these yellow lines that you see that now have animated across the screen represent all of the solar alignments that are incorporated into the design of serpent mound okay so uh 
essentially the way to think about it is you have the body of the serpent where all the bends are in the center point of the serpent, some that point towards the east and some that point towards the west. Each one of those bends points to the, set, uh, the place on the horizon where the sun rises during key moments of the sun's cycle throughout the year, the spring equinox, the summer solstice, the autumn equinox, the uh, winter solstice. And so all of the sunrise alignments and all of the sunset alignments are incorporated into the shape of Serpent Mound itself. And uh, there's actually some duplicates. So, for instance, there are two summer solstice sunset alignments. There are two winter solstice mm-hmm. sunset alignments. Um, so it's reinforced within the design. Uh, and so Serpent Mount, as I said on uh, Ancient Apocalypse, is one of the most amazing archaeoastronomy sites in North America because it incorporates all of these solar alignments and it also incorporates all the lunar alignments, the key lunar alignments, which I think if you go forward here one step, uh, you'll see the blue lines come up. Uh, they, the, all of the blue lines represent the lunar alignments, and it incorporates solar and lunar alignments and possibly planetary alignments into one unified design. And it's not like a circle of rocks or a circle of posts it's a recognizable sculpture yeah it's a sheer work of genius right you have to understand that this is this is like ideas condensating on the ground right coming through people that made these right this these are ideas from people's heads that now incorporate information from their culture and their cultural time frame that were incorporated into this structure. Right, okay? right. It's, it's, it's just sheer astonishing. It speaks volumes, right? It's amazing, yeah. right? And how so, did they, how were they able to, I mean, just the, the, of what we know about astronomy, it's like Copernicus and, you know, the, 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 it, during the Renaissance, a lot of these things were starting to just come. But here we have in Ohio, there's stuff built into the Serpent Mound, like uh, Phi back to Aristotle. And, and geometry, right? <laughs> geometric yeah. principles yeah. and mathematics. So you're talking about going back into BC mind. times. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now, what you're seeing on the screen here is I've, over the past several years, done a project to map out from an aerial drone these alignments because it's become very difficult to do that on the ground with all of the trees and the limited access uh, now that they have imposed on the site. So uh, you can see here, if you put up the animation, I think you'll see an arrow that will point. So this is pointing from that central bend to the horizon for the vernal equinox. It's the same for the autumnal equinox. There's just more leaves on the trees in the autumn. But you can go forward and you'll be able to see. This is a time lapse that I took back in 2015 in that bend of the serpent watching the sunrise for the vernal equinox. There we go. um, This video is also on uh, YouTube. You can go out there, just do serpent mound time lapse in your search, and uh, and you'll find several of these time lapses of the sunrise 
coming up in the center of the bend. Damn, that's cool. Okay. This comes up right after uh, the people there. I had to shoo somebody out that, oh, walked, that. walked in there. Wow. So, there it is. So, uh, excuse me. Crazily enough, you just watched this, right? It's there. It happened. Right. Okay. Uh, Brad Lepper and oh, uh, Chief Ben Barnes of the Shawnee wrote an article last year saying that there are no alignments at Serpent Mound. There are none. But we just what watched. are these coincidences? I don't understand. So, we just saw. Again, so you can be, you can believe your lying eyes, or you can listen to the guy that writes the narrative for Serpent Mound. He says there are none. So I think that's an important distinction you made earlier, though, and you've kind of drilled it down pretty hard about you know we look at it as the Ohio History Connection, the Ohio Historical Society. It's a company. Yeah. It How just do we get all it. these people together in the same that's room? Wild. To talk about these, no, I don't think that's ever going to happen. I've it's, been in the same. With these I want to hold a debate almost. To it's like, let's yeah. bring this Im- these images up. Let's talk about. Let's discuss yeah. it. And How, maybe, maybe yeah, you so, learn something new. So maybe here's your here's your sunset like, for the vernal equinox. You can put up the animation there, and you can just move through these. Mm-hmm. This is each one of the uh, solar alignments. Uh, here you got a little That's bit of fog beautiful. there. Jesus. This is the summer That's solstice. Gorgeous. That is beautiful. What a great image, Jeff. And wow. uh, here's uh, this is very similar to oh, the cool. shot that Graham included in America Before. Yep. Um, this is my my drone shot of the same uh, alignment, but it's almost uh, you know I mean it's, it's the same alignment, summer solstice. <laughs> uh, but it's almost like not giving Santa, them credit. Santa Hancock did a great job shooting her uh, you know shot. Uh, I have a comparable one there. Then uh, you have the autumnal equinox sunrise here. It's the same as the vernal equinox. But aren't we minimizing how advanced this is by saying that? Yeah. We're really saying, oh, well, maybe they're not that in in tune. Maybe this site isn't that incredible. But, but, I mean. It's discounting the genius of the people that actually built it. That's what it feels like. But at Newark, they admit, like, the Great Octagon is the 18.6-year lunar calendar. It's I went to the museum, and they have this new Hopal exhibit, and it goes through on the wall, and and it's this whole display of, it's like, well, that has a ton of astronomical alignments. Why wouldn't this? Well, um, part of it has to do, I think, with um, archaeological ego. Hmm. the guys that did the first, um, the people that did the first reporting of an astronomical alignment at Serpent Mound were two people from Florida, uh, Clark Hardiman Jr. and his wife Marjorie. And they identified the summer solstice sunset alignment through the head and through the oval to the horizon. And the issue that archaeologists have had ever since they did that is, uh, well, first of all, they're not archaeologists. So you're not in the club? Not in the club. Okay. Uh, they were dowsers. Dow rods. Heard this story. Oh, my gosh. If, if That's like woo-woo to some people. But dowsing's right. been around forever. That's how my grandpa and so, them used to find water. Very unscientific. <laughs> but nevertheless, they were the first ones to document it. And ever since, it's been like... Oh my God! You know, archaeological community says no, we can't touch that because because they didn't say it first, or yeah. So uh, then uh, the next group uh, that did any uh, solar alignment work were two non-archaeologists, uh, uh, Fletcher and Cameron, 
And they identified the sunrises for the summer solstice and the Tumalegrax and the winter solstice. They only did the sunrise. They didn't do the sunsets. I asked Cameron one time why he didn't do the sunsets. He says, well, there are too many leaves on the trees. So they didn't do it. And I said, well, why don't you just go in the springtime when there are no leaves on the trees? So said, well, we didn't think of that. So I, Fair enough. we've identified them since, uh, both in calculating them and in yeah. sitting on the ground, and like you've seen these shots, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, but Cameron and Fletcher were the two people, along with Lepper, that did the 1991 excavation, uh, you know, through the trench. Okay. And so if you go to Serpent Mound, they have one sign that, that's just this weird kind of oblique angle drawing of Serpent Mound that shows only the three astronomical alignments from Cameron and Fletcher. That's it. No, none. No, no other ones. Right. So. So they admit to parts. Yeah. But, a not bit. A- but, but now Leper says it aren't. <clears throat> so it's hard to say, you know, like it changes all the time. Um, they definitely don't like to acknowledge any of Romaine's work. Uh, Romaine's lunar alignment work. Um, and uh, Romaine did a lot of calculations of all of the other alignments. In fact, Romaine uh, did the work to calculate, to, to confirm my observations of the most recent alignment that was found. In 2015, I discovered that when you get to the last bend of the serpent, mm-hmm. if you extend that last bend through the center point of the spiral tail to the horizon, that's the alignment for the winter solstice. It's, it's like a, a symmetrical match of the one for the summer solstice, which gotcha. is through the head. Yeah. The other one goes through the tail. Through, is that okay. this one or is that the next one? Uh, that's the sunrise. Okay. If you go to the next one, that's the sunset. Okay. And... Um, there's your sunset, so right okay. through the center of the tail. And Whoa. if you go out to if you go out to YouTube, yeah. you can see I did a time lapse video the of the, the sunset yang. there. Yeah. All right. So Romaine did the actual mathematical calculations to confirm this, and you know published that material. And so you know they just don't acknowledge it. They don't want to acknowledge it because. In almost all the circumstances, non-archaeologists were making these observations. Like, again, I would consider myself to be more of an astronomer than an archaeologist. But my interest has always been in this prehistoric astronomy, uh, you know, what they call archaeoastronomy. Do you think it's interesting that they put the solstices on the head and tail for the winter and summer? And is there any... Like cyclical Longest movement through year, like shortest day of the year. Yeah, it, well, I meant it, like it we're makes going through winter to get to the summer, and it, the head of the summer is it. It forces you to consider cultural impacts because of the way that the design is laid out. Yeah. Right? There's a lot of cultural implications about this that relates to people's usage through the calendar year, right? Yeah. Um, and through the cycle of the moon, which takes 18.6 years to complete that cycle. Yeah. You're talking about generations of observations. Right, right, right. right. And so you were earlier asking, well, how did they figure that out? How did they... Well, for many years, Long I tried to understand what this was. And I don't know if you noticed it, but on that overhead LIDAR view, it had all the astronomical alignments. I had this little dotted purple circle. Off to the left. Off to the left. Yeah. And that's where many of the astronomical alignments kind of converge yeah. to a central point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that point is actually off the cliff. 
Right. Mm. And so if you were going to stand in one place to make those observations, you can't do it because it's off the cliff. Either that or they built a tower there off the cliff to stand there to figure that out, right? I see what you're and saying. So, and yeah. so there's some philosophical underpinnings of considering, well, what does that mean? Why is that the case, right? Well, a few years ago, I was granted uh, special researcher access to Harvard's archives about Serpent Mound. And most of that stuff is not digitized. So I was ordering stuff directly from their catalog of material that has never really been seen before. I, I worked with them for about, I don't know, six weeks to a month on, on finding a, a way to digitize this gigantic oversized map that Putnam had made. Putnam, I found there are two unpublished maps of Serpent Mound that Putnam did for uh, the entirety of the park. Putnam had a bit of a background in surveying. At one point, before he became the curator of the Peabody Museum, he was the assistant on the Kentucky Geological Survey. And how he got his job as the curator of uh, Harvard's Peabody Museum is because he was the nephew of Uncle George Peabody, who donated all the money to make the Peabody okay. uh, Museum at Harvard and uh, one at Yale. Um, that was at the request of one of Putnam's cousins, uh, an, a kind of a geologist from Yale University by the name of Olathaniel Marsh, O.C. Marsh. He was digging at the Newark Earthworks. And digging up a mound uh, in Newark, and he was coming up with all these artifacts, and he said, you know what? We really need to figure out some way to preserve these, build some kind of museum to house this stuff. And so he wrote to his Uncle George Peabody, wealthy industrialist in London, and said, hey, what do you think of this idea? And so George Peabody donated $100,000 to Yale for the Natural History Museum at Yale and $100,000 to Harvard <coughs> to establish the Peabody Museum of Archaeology okay. and Ethnology. Okay. They hired a curator there, a guy by the name of Jeffries Wyman, who was there for a number of years, and then Wyman dropped dead unexpectedly. So they looked around for somebody to replace Wyman, and they picked up Putnam out of the backwoods of Kentucky and dropped him in to be the curator of the Peabody Museum at Harvard. That's wild. So, you know, a little nepotism going on there. That's yeah. another story they don't like to tell you about. Yeah. Because Putnam is held up as the father of American archaeology in many cases. In fact, you go to Harvard Peabody Museum, that, that's exactly how they describe him. So, uh, in any event, um, that location, because it's off of the edge of the cliff, leads you to wonder about well, where did they stand to be able to make the observations, right? And, yeah, here's the one with all the blue lines. Those are all the lunar alignments. Right, so northernmost moonrise, midpoint moonrise, southernmost moonrise. That takes 18.6 years to, to complete that cycle, right? That's the same kind of cycle that they laud at, at Newark, the octagon, right, at the octagon. At the golf There's course. that central avenue, and it... It highlights one of these uh, astronomical lines. And there's your circle is, that's converging. Yeah, this is throwing me off because I've never considered it. 
of how they had the perspective to draw the lines That's to what figure I mean. out. Right. Like, how I've do never you know so this, that. Is, this Stan, is the thing that came up in you... Ancient Aliens, right? The Ancient Aliens solution is, well, from gosh, above, it must be UFOs from, from above, right? Yeah. That they figured it out. Well, the thing is, is that the hill to the north of Serpent Mound is elevated by about 50 to 80 feet. And uh, Putnam actually went up there and took pictures looking down at Serpent Mound. So you do get an elevated view from the hill to the north, which is on right. private property. Uh, and it's all forested now, so you can't really have that view. But when Putnam was there, remember, all the trees were down, so they were able to take pictures from up there. Right. So it is much more elevated. So it's not really necessary. You don't have to be flying in a UFO to look at Serpent Mound to figure it out. Right. Okay. But um, if you go forward another slide, I think, just keep going forward. Yeah, you can skip this because uh, we've been talking about that stuff. I don't yeah. know if some of these slides are doubled up. Oh, maybe that going. was doubled up. There we up. go. Okay. Uh, maybe we can come back to this, but okay. I want to make a, a specific point. It just forward through this a little Copy bit. That. We can come back to it. Skip this and I'll come back to it. God, that's so cool. That's a kind of a wider view. So this is Putnam's map. All right. And you can see the folds and the creases. There's kind of a holes, a couple holes in there where it was folded up. So Putnam yeah. made two maps. Might want to go full screen on this for a sec, Kyle. These two maps that, that Putnam made, one he, ma he made in 1886 when Harvard acquired the property. And it was basically to figure out where the property lines are. And so you look at the map, you can see the property boundaries of the park. That's all measured out exactly the way it is today. Right? Okay. And then he did four summers of excavations. And then he made this map. And this map shows all of the results of the excavations. And this map was never published before. And this is the academia paper that you were, said that I had written. I wrote a paper talking about finding these two unpublished maps in the archives about Serpent Mound and discussing one of the finds that I made on this map, which had not been previously reported. Putnam only wrote, he did four summers of excavations, and in year three, he wrote an article, 12 pages long, including all the <laughs> photographs that were included to illustrate it, uh, that was published in Century Magazine in 1890. And he wrote that the prior year, and it took a year before that was published. And so there's a whole other year excavations after the right. article had already been written, but had not yet been published. And so... Just 12 little pages is all he wrote about all of the stuff that they found at Serpent Mount. So I've gone back into Harvard's archives, and I've looked at every single artifact that they found. I've looked at all the catalog information about all the people who were buried, where they were buried from. I've looked at all of this paper documentation, all the documentation from the ladies of Boston to the trustees of the Peabody Museum about how they say so. I've looked at all of it. And... and you have to go back to that primary source to really begin to understand, yeah. well, what is it that they were finding? Where did they find it? So I put together like this four to five hour long presentation about all of the stuff that Putnam found, the mysterious Putnam excavations, because he, he barely talked about any of it. So all of that is still at the Peabody? <clears throat> yes. At Harvard? Correct. Yeah. And did, so. Did they display these things? Um, they have a very few, probably somewhere between five and ten small artifacts on display in a museum. Okay. 
most of it is totally not on display. So uh, on this map, south of Serpent Mound, I think if you go one more forward here, yeah, this shows a section on the map. There's a big white area there where it's now a piece missing where Mm -hmm. it was all folded up. And just to one side of that, you'll see that there's a, a circle in the center that little circle, that, gr- that Putnam-colored green, is the small conical mound that exists today next to the picnic shelter mm-hmm. at Serpent Mound. Okay, But if you notice, that circle is at the center of this dotted line circle. In fact, it's a double dotted line circle oh, that see. goes okay. around. Yeah, yeah. Okay? And if you go on the animation, I think I've got some animation <laughs> oh, to cool. show that. Well, that little box that I put up there is the notation about what those dots are. It says the black dots are post holes. So a hinge? A wood hinge. Okay. So it was my hypothesis that that double dotted line was a wood hinge that served as the location for where they figured out all of the astronomical alignments at Serpent Mound. Oh, and then so, they took that knowledge, wow. transferred it, you know, two hundred so feet to the north. This is the calculator. And can, yes, and can constructed the sculpture wow. based on the knowledge from the wood hinge here. Okay. Now, if you were to see, that's right at the center point of it. Okay, so if you can go through this animation here Copy. to the next slide. Um, these are just some notations on that. So this is what where it would look like today. There's so you can the see lot. you can see how big that circle was. It's a little over 300 feet in diameter, based on exactly mapping Putnam's map to the property boundaries, which are not unchanged <coughs> to this day. Right? You can figure out essentially where that location was. Right. Right. Okay. And so you can see where that is now. That whole area where the parking lot is and the picnic shelter is and the museum is, over the course of the last 100 years, there have been about 27 different buildings that used to be, exist in that area that have were there and then removed, were there and then removed. So, so tracking that over time through historical photographs, there are somewhere close to almost 30 buildings that had been in that area. That area has been so disturbed, so ridiculously disturbed. And so it's hard to determine what may or may not be there. Um, In any event, in Don Beer's waterline excavation, going across that area, remember the drinking fountain used to be near the picnic shelter. His waterline excavation crossed the area where that Wood hinge possibly would have been. Again, we have no report. But in the report that was done by the Adams County historian Stephen Kelly, he included photographs which showed that where the water line excavation crossed that area, there was a circle of posts, kind of a circular ring of posts that were found. Okay. Now, I talked to one of the guys that worked on the excavation. He's in his 70s, a guy by the name of Andy Davenport, who worked at the park during that period of time. He actually worked at the park going all the way back to the early 1970s. And, and when they did this excavation, he said not only did – when they found that, they got, Don Beer got really excited about it, and he said that they did 
a secondary excavation away from the main excavation to the west of the picnic shelter. Now you see that ring goes around the picnic shelter, right, to the west. And he said that they did about somewhere between uh, 12 and 20 feet long trench, and they found more post holes. Okay. Now, we don't have a picture of it. We don't have a written report of it. We only have what one of the guys that worked on it said, and we have the picture in the report from the Adams County historian that confirms that, that maybe those post holes were there. Okay. Now, Dr. Jared Burks did a big giant magnetometer survey of this area. He didn't find anything. So we don't have real good confirmation of it, but it's my contention, based on Putnam's documentation from his original excavations, that that exists there. Right. Now, an alternative explanation for that was, well, during the Fort Ancient era, those people used to build a kind of a picket wall around their villages. And so an alternative explanation is, Possibly, well, maybe this is a Fort Ancient wall. wall construction. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't Kind of like you see appear... at Cahokia where they built those massive right. big log walls around the right. whole place, which they think they killed off all the trees. That used to be a hypothesis. I don't think that's yeah. legit anymore. So, but, but I contend <laughs> that it's more likely that it's a wood henge because other wood henges have been found in Ohio as well as the ones at Cahokia. Yeah. Okay. Right? So there w- the first wood henge that was found in Ohio was found at a place called the Stubbs Earthworks. It's about five miles south of uh, Fort Ancient. Okay. Uh, there was um, the property was sold to the local school district, and they wanted to build a high school there, and so they get you know started to you know uh, prepare the site. They had a bulldozer out there bulldozing the area where I think they were going to put the football field, and the guy in the bulldozer noticed that as he ran across the ground, there was this weird sort of arc of little circles in the ground. And so they called in uh, an archaeologist team from Cincinnati Museum Center, and they did an emergency excavation, and they found this entirety of a wood henge. Okay. Okay, that was the first one that was found. That was in the 90s. Then... What found until the 90s? Yeah. Wow. And then um, in the early 2000s, a female archaeologist at the National Park Service, Jennifer Pedersen Weinberger did a magnetometer survey at the Hopewell Earthworks, and she discovered a wood henge at the Hopewell Earthworks. And over the past 15 years or so, they have slowly confirmed that through uh, archaeological excavation. Dr. Brett Ruby, National Park Service, has been in charge of those excavations. Dr. Brett Ruby also, during those uh, excavations, uh, they wanted to do a magnetometer survey of the whole site. So at first they got Dr. Jared Burks uh, from Ohio Valley Archaeology to start doing that work, and he started at one end of it and, you know, months of work, and he's got about, you know, 20% of the way across, and it's taken him forever. Well, Ruby had gone to a conference, an archaeological conference, in which he saw the results of kind of advanced magnetometry research that was being done by the German Archaeological Institute. They basically did all of the magnetometer research that was done at Stonehenge and the whole plane around Stonehenge. I was Stonehenge. just going to say, 
this is similar to what they've recently discovered. Stone and I and Chris went to Stonehenge, and right. just then they were just talking about the Woodhenge. And at, it, at, it, out near Stonehenge. How yeah. there's uh, <clears throat> several other henges that are all basically one big site yes. of the major site. But so it's they so brought, wild. You see these Stonehenges in Europe, and here they are mm. in Ohio. Yeah, so, so the National Park Service brought in the German Archaeological Institute's team, and they had a 13-magnetometer array, and they did Hopewell site, site mound, uh, Hoped in site. Uh, they did a bunch of the National Park Service units of Hopewell Culture National Park, and they found tons and tons of stuff. Uh, you know, they are, the archaeologists at National Park Service will be, be excavating that stuff for the next century and a half. Whoa. There's so much stuff. They found, like, dozens of enclosures that nobody knew about before. Um, so that, that's the power of that. But the limitation of magnetometry <clears throat> is that it only detects alterations that are in the soil yeah. that, that gives it that um, magnetically induced bit. So, tr- like, ditches are a big thing. Because once you dig a ditch, then it sort of slowly gets filled in over time. That fill dirt is magnetically different than the surrounding area. And so that shows up right away on a magnetometer. It's why... When Burks did his magnetometer survey of Serpent Mound, their intention was to figure out, well, where did Putnam Trench through it, right? Mm-hmm. Figure out where all the trenches were. But the problem was, was that Putnam layered a whole gigantic layer of soil on top of Serpent Mound. And so Serpent Mound was essentially opaque. Serpent Mound showed up like a big, giant black line in mm-hmm. the magnetometer survey because it was, it was all disturbed, all disturbed earth, earth mm-hmm. right? And so um, in any event... What I did here was I transposed the size of the circle from around where the picnic shelter is to the convergence point Mm. of Serpent Mound. And lo and behold, the curvature of Serpent Mound fits fits exactly to the curvature of that dotted line circle. That is very, very interesting. Like the Woodhenge part of it, right? And so it... I think that the Woodhenge idea, this hypothesis, has some merit because it seems to give you the explanation for the astronomical alignments. Like, well, because they did the observations over here, yeah, because it was and so then they moved it over there off the cliff. But they based it on the, the same creek. size of the circle, right? Yeah, like if they were actually, like you said, standing. That's deep down in a cliff. And for those just yeah, going to be listening. It's uh, it, yeah. The center point is off the cliff, pretty significant. Yeah, so you so. would be down below where that cave is, almost. Right. So I don't know if you want to go back a couple slides sure. and I could talk a little bit about that lidar stuff. Um, this one. Yeah, go back before these maps of Putnam. Uh, the lidar findings. Um, we can stay just right on this okay. slide. Uh, if you want to hit the animation, mm-hmm. uh, what you see here is a serpent mound is sort of on the left side, Oops. right? And then you notice I put this little box up. This is one of the things that we don't really know much about. Is we can t- we know exactly what, you can see where the parking lot is and where the asphalt pathways are in this lidar image, but this sort of rectangle feature is on a plateau to the south east of the parking lot and so it's an anomaly we don't really know what made that um is that a prehistoric feature well no one's 
really dug into that to confirm whether it is yeah. or it isn't. Um, Doesn't look natural. Right. Another feature is if you look just to the east of Serpent Mound on this map, uh, it would be kind of no, uh, above where Serpent Mound is. You'll notice that there's kind of a weird oval feature. Yeah. That stuck out to me like a sore thumb when I first saw the LIDAR because I'm like, what the heck is that? No one's ever written about that. I mean, I read, I wrote, read everything that any archaeologist had written about Serpent Mound, and nobody ever reported that feature. I went out there. It's only like you know, uh, fifty feet from the mound on the it's east out in the side. Woods. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's just inside the tree line, and it's a pit feature about forty feet long and about twenty-five feet wide and about twelve feet deep. Wow. You might think that might be something that somebody would want to study, but nobody has ever reported on it. And so whether that's a modern thing or a prehistoric thing, we don't really know. No archaeologist at this point was willing to touch it. So, yeah. you know, we just don't know what that is. Now, the Friends of Serpent Mound spent some time uh, cleaning out what was the material that was in there. So we cleared it out, and it does hold water during certain seasons of the year. <clears throat> so it's unclear whether that was a man-made pool of some kind. Uh, the Hopewell were known to do things like that. It could be a modern construction. Uh, none of the early aerial photographs really show that area in good right. detail. Right. So we don't really know, because they're all focused on the serpent. They're not focused away from and, the serpent. And none of this is in any of Putnam's drawings. No. Because yeah, it all would none have been of cleared the early, too, right? None of the early drawings, besides Putnam's, don't, they don't show this either. So it's really a puzzle what this is. And so that's, that's what LIDAR picks up. Now, you may notice that there's a like kind of another sort of square thing up in the upper right corner. Right. Yeah. We know what that is. That is a pond that was constructed <clears throat> by the CCC, or the Civilian Conservation Corps, and the WPA, the Works Project Administration, back in the 1930s. There was a work camp that was set up up there. And most of what you see in the park today, the, the landscape of how the park was created, including the parking lot, the restrooms, the museum, the caretaker house, the maintenance building, the rock walls that are there, the pathways that go around Serpent Mound, there are drains around the mountain, all of that, including the uh, overlook that, you know, out at the head of the Serpent, all of that was created, federal taxpayer money, uh, during the WPA and the CCC era, right? Okay. And so that is an era of time that changed the land use of Serpent Mound significantly, and it's not very well documented. Okay. Right? And that's yeah. something that my wife and I have been working on recently is to try to document all of that material because it's important to understand what the land use changes are yeah. so you can figure out what these things are, what these right, features are that, right. that we get, we now have questions about. We don't right. really know. Right? I mean, Amazing that's crazy stuff. to think that that's just sitting off in the woods next to it. Right. So you can also see the three depressions on here. I think if you go in the animation, I point them out. Uh, or maybe not. But, yeah, I think that uh, was, uh, But you can see those on there. Now, uh, those depressions, I, I kind of ha don't call them borrow pits like, like the OHC used to call them any longer because of... William Romaine's Serpent Mound Project. The, Romaine did not believe that those were borrow pits. He had a hypothesis that those were actually sinkholes. Hmm. And so from the caves or something. partnering with the people from Indiana University, they ran an electric resistivity survey line over the, those areas, essentially uh, 
you know, it's an electrical wire. You put a post in the ground at one end, and then you put posts in wherever the electrical line goes, and then it shoots that electricity down the ground, and the data comes back into the sensor, and you can tell what constitutes the layers of soil in the ground about maybe down to about 30 feet deep. It's better, a little bit better than ground penetrating radar, okay. uh, but there's some interpretation that needs to happen when you look at that stuff. But they did confirm that there was a, those are sinkholes. Now, here's the important part about this, and this is something that I had to tell Romain. Um, in the late 1990s, or maybe in the mid-1990s, one of those sinkholes opened up, and there was a hole in the middle of it. Now, based on what Don Beer had said about the highest concentration of artifacts was along the edge between those depressions and the parking lot, if they had done a report and if people knew that that was the case, they might have done something different than what they did. They did not investigate that archaeologically. What the Ohio History Connection did instead was they dumped 14 dump truck loads worth of gravel down into it. Hmm. Okay. Good grief. Well, well, so if there was a cavern... It's gone. That is now largely unrecoverable without an enormous amount so there of could, work. Like, it could be some like hidden chamber or well, Romain, man-made Romaine did find that the gravel only went into kind of two of the depressions. One of the depressions seems to be still intact. It's about... 30 feet long and at least 15 feet high. So it's a pretty big cavern down there, but doing archaeology to get down into it might be pretty challenging. Uh, but nevertheless, that's another mysterious thing about Serpent Mound right. that, that could have been explained, and instead the corporation chose another thing because they felt that there was liability there. It was dangerous yeah, for the public. So they originally get, put a it. fence up around it, <clears throat> And then they said, okay, we got to take fence, and then they just filled it in with gravel. It just seems like a purposeful botch job from start to finish. I mean, but again, you have bureaucrats, like people making decisions. Years of administration that have done bad things at Serpent Mound. That's crazy. I mean, just to give you one more example, uh, well, maybe I'll tell the story when we get to a a closer (laughs) picture, Uh, but we'll we'll, go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) Keep moving. Yeah. I love it. I mean, the amount of information that you have collected Dude, you go down over these years. Holes. I mean, there's the impact. Okay, crater. so here's our here's the it's lidar fantastic. map that I put together showing the entirety of the crater. So this is the Serpent Mound Crypto Explosive Area Natural National Landmark, and I put a little animation there. That little arrow points to where Serpent Mound is in relation to the crater. And then this is a color elevation version of that, so you can see where the Brush Creek Valley goes and where the central uplift is and where the crater rims are. And I think if you go forward one more, I think I have an animation here showing where, well, I guess not, but there, I had an animation in here that showed where all the gravitational anomalies are and where the electric uh, magnetic anomalies are. Uh, Serpentine actually sits in between two electromagnetic field highs according to what was mapped by the geologists. So. Okay. I think but, our slide deck's... But you can see little that little this bit. map that was created, you know, is not perfectly square, rectangular, that there's little bits of data right. missing out of there. That's because each tiny little square here 
is like the 80,000 data points of the Serpent Mound mm-hmm. little thing. And remember, I did that giant map of Serpent Mound with LIDAR. So this is like that times 50. This map took me about two weeks of processing time on my computer to process this data. Um, originally. So render time. Just render time, yeah. Oh, my God. Now, it's a little faster today to be able to do that, but yeah. back Processors. when I did this in 2011, it was pretty challenging. Yeah. Like, you could, you, it would be challenging to, like, take a couple of these squares and put them together, but I did this for, like, 25 squares, and it was like, can you really do it? And, uh, you know, so. This is cool. Yeah. It's a very neat image. Okay, so this is uh, uh, a aerial photo map that I did of Serpent Mound a few years ago with my LIDAR, or with my drone, I'm sorry. Um, this is made up of 802 high-resolution photographs that were stitched together using some software um, that created the most detailed, uh, comprehensive photo mosaic map of Serpent Mound. And from this data... You can do a lot of things. Now, this is a commercial drone. Uh, you guys, I think, have the same model drone. Yep. Uh, it's a Mavic Pro 2. And uh, so just by using some different software, you can get it to do some fun scientific mm-hmm. things. Now, I don't know if you'd be able to discern that in this picture, but when I was taking these photos in, in the springtime, because there's no leaves on the trees, uh, I noticed that in the bend of the serpent that points to the summer solstice sunset, which is the bend uh, kind of, if you're starting from the tail, it's the next one, uh, the first one that bends towards the west, okay? So it's the first bend to the west. There is a circle patch there in the grass. I see it. Okay. Now... I've you done a lot of aerial photography over yeah, the years. Right below that yellow tree. Uh, yep. No, that's the center one. You got to go down to the one below that. There is a circle there in the, oh, in the center one. Oh, the darker one. Yeah, it's a dark circle there. Okay, and right by the path. I've done uh, aerial photography in in prior years in which I was able to, like I mentioned before, I took an aerial photograph of the junction group. That was in a farm field. And what showed up was a discoloration in the crops based on the differentiation of the soil from the earthwork below. This is something similar to that. And so this is another archaeological feature we know nothing about. But it's about 100 feet in diameter. It's not small. Right. right? Based on this picture, it looks like it's really tiny. But when you get there on the ground, that's a pretty sizable circular feature yeah yep. you know bigger than this room that we're in yeah. certainly right yeah so it's a pretty big structure uh relatively speaking and so i want to go ahead and flip to the next picture so what your mm, drone can is. do is you can separate out the wavelengths of light same drone imagery but instead of looking at it in the visible part of the spectrum, you can create a spectral image. And that's what we're looking at here. And that shows up. Those There's actually three blue circles. In the three bends that point to the west, there are three of these circles. And, uh, again, this is 
coming from the spectral image. So they, that those features are there in the landscape, and it's pulling them up as reflecting differently than the surrounding area. Right. Okay. Go to the next slide, and this is a thermal image. All right. Look so you that. can you can look at the thermal imagery on your drone. See, and I thought I again, was seeing other circles though. Yep. Again, there are three no. circles there. Yeah. Okay. So this is another puzzle. We don't really know what these features are. Jared Burks's magnetometer did not pick these up. Okay. So we have a different kind of archaeological feature than what a magnetometer is tendency is to to, mm -hmm. to pull up in its data. So this is another archaeological feature we do not know anything about. Lots of mysteries at Serpent Map. Theories? <coughs> well, <coughs> I, mean, I don't, I don't no. really have one that I could gotcha. put forward right at this point. Yeah. I mean, that, that I'm willing to yeah, share. Yeah, gotcha. Not gotcha. enough data no to have a... Yeah. I mean, it's just very interesting, yeah. the okay. location of Another the... thing that you can use with this imagery is you can create what's known as a digital elevation model from that... Uh, digital mosaic and you take the imagery away and this is what's underlying it it's created by thousands and thousands of of tiny little triangles essentially to create a three-dimensional model of what you're seeing and if you notice that in the center of the oval you'll see a circle there okay well that circle corresponds to i put a little historical photo in there uh of there used to be a circle circular pile of stones in the center of the oval at Serpent Mound, or just offset from the center. That pile of stones was identified by Squire and Davis, and it was identified by Putnam when he was there, and, and it, was, it survived the reconstruction. This is a post-reconstruction photo that mm. Putnam took. Um, I colorized it using a, a colorizing algorithm. Oh, wow. Wow. And Because this, this was on a black and white yeah. uh, uh, glass plate. Yeah. Uh, I found this, and I, I, did, uh, I used a a publicly accessible uh, colorization algorithm. And you can see that pile of stones was still there, a couple feet high, you know, a couple feet in, in diameter. And here's why I'll tell you the story. So everybody asks, well, what happened to that? It's not there today, right? What happened to the circle of stones? Well, the circle of stones was there until the mid-1980s. You think, well, hmm. why isn't it there today? It was there in the 1980s. Why is it not there today? Well, because the people at the Ohio Historical Society got tired of cutting the grass around it, so they picked up the stones, walked it over to the edge, and threw the stones over the side of the cliff. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's desecration of an ancient site. Probably the most sacred place at the sacred right, place. Right, And they just dismantled it and threw it over both sides of the cliff. I mean, as someone that in has... The, in the 2000s when I was volunteering these there... places, that makes my stomach just turn. We heard this story... And I convinced the site manager at the time, let's go on a hunt. Go I believed them. that if they were that lazy to throw the stones over the cliff, well, they probably just picked them up and walked to the closest point of the cliff yeah. on both sides, and we found all those stones. Okay, and so we notified the OHC and told them that this, you know, that where the stones were located, they were all within. We we did we used an industrial leaf blower and blew down the vegetation down the sides of the cliff, and all the stones were within about a ten foot wide kind of array right down the cliff side. Okay, right? so 
the question has been, and I've been in a bunch of these meetings uh, around, you know, how to manage Serpent Mound, been in management plan meetings about it. What do we, what do they do about it? And the question is, well, if they replace the stones back to where they came from, how long do you think they're going to last before people just walk away with them uh, Pretty quick, as, yeah. as souvenirs? I would right? think good point. So they don't want to do that. I can do they replace that. it with a fake altar? Yes. Yeah, Nobody wants to do that. So they're in this quandary of, well, what do we do? There's not, we're not going to do anything about it. But it just becomes a chapter in <clears throat> what is the land use history since, you know, uh, it, the site was bits discovered. bits and pieces as we go. Bits and pieces going away. That little tip mound that's up there closer to the edge yeah. of the cliff on the other side of the oval from where the head is, that's a remnant of the outer oval that used to exist. If you go back and you look at all the early drawings of Serpent Mound, I think I included that in my folder of stuff, but... Uh, you can see all the earliest drawings of Serpent Mount show that there was an outer oval outside of the current oval. And after Putnam's reconstruction, that outer oval vanished, except for that little tip mound up there is like the last little remnant bit of it. And so this is where I've kind of parted a little bit with Graham and his interpretation in uh, Ancient uh, Apocalypse. Graham is using, like... The, the alignment from the head of the serpent through that tip mound off to the horizon to determine that that is an astronomical alignment that dates back to before the Younger Dryas. But that, I don't believe, is the case. I think that's just a remnant feature. It's offset from the center point of the uh, oval and the head. And what you have to do is you have to draw a line from the back of the notch of the head through that center altar, straight to the horizon, and that is offset from what Graham talked about in Ancient Apocalypse. Just a little bit. Yeah, and that is the alignment that we see the summer solstice sunset come down on still to this day. You know, so that was likely constructed in, you know, 321 B.C. or roughly thereabouts, and, uh, you know, that's the alignment that's for the summer solstice. Graham's, you know, Conjecture is no. I think it's this other alignment over here, um, and I'm not sure I really buy that. Gotcha. So gotcha. I mean, it's a it's a hypothesis, right? You know? Yeah. It's a, it's, it's yeah. hard to you know find additional proof to prove it one way or the other. Right. And I'm sure when you brought it, if if you brought it up to him, that oh he he's was, seen he he's was seen open all these to, presentations. He's gone yeah. through all my I've gone through all this material with him. Dude, this is so crazy. So here's another little bit about that center oval. So I've, I've talked about using commercially available drones to do this, you know, sort of thermal imagery and spectral imagery and, and you know, mapping with LIDAR and, and all this kind of stuff. This is LIDAR now today. So when I did those early LIDAR maps, that was in 2007. Right. LIDAR technology has advanced. Major. To the point where um, I remember... Um, Stanford University, about maybe 10 years ago, uh, when you do, when you're an archaeologist and you do a, like a block trench excavation, you have to do a lot of drawings of every layer of soil that you go through. And the students at Stanford that were getting trained in this archaeological method were like, this is such a waste of time. <laughs> and they, they said, they went, somebody got their Xbox Connect, rewrote some software 
that Xbox Connect technology oh, yeah. is LiDAR. It scans the entire room and it monitors your movements yep. during during you playing that game. And so they rewrote the software and they just scanned the trench. And they got the depth they, and, the, and the imagery of it. And they scanned the trench on every layer and they just, you know, like, why do we got to go do this the old way? We're just going to use this new technology. Well, the company that built that Xbox Connect was bought by Apple. And they have miniaturized that and now put that in your iPhone. So Whoa, if you buy an iPhone Pro from 12, 13, 14, it has LiDAR built into it. So I've got my you know, phone here. So there's a little tiny circle sensor yeah. on your phone, right? That is your LiDAR sensor. And it was put on the iPhone to make your phone focus better in low light conditions. So it right. sends the LiDAR out, figures out where everything is, and then focuses to that distance so that you get good pictures in so low light conditions. That's cinema mode. But smart people have written software and apps that allow you to just use the LiDAR only. As is, yeah. As is. And so what I did was I used some of that <clears> software, <throat> and I took a selfie stick, and I walked around the oval, and I scanned the oval with my iPhone, and lo and behold, the, on the left is the visible light version. On the right is when you look at it, just the LiDAR data, and you can see the remnant of that stone circle. altar, that stone circle in the oval. Wow. Okay. So this is now what I call the democratization of archaeology. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to do this on your own. Okay. You can do archaeology. Right. Anybody can do archaeology, right? You don't have to wait for some archaeologist to, you know, do this work, which is not being done anyways. It's really, if we want to understand these sites and we want to understand these questions that we all have, we're going to have to go and do it ourselves. It's not going to get done for us. It's yeah. not going to get done for us. That's, there's so, there's, it's frustrating. There's too little bit of these people doing this kind of work, God. right? And so it's not lack of resources. It, that's, no, I mean I did this in like an hour or two. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not that hard, but this is one of these cross disciplinary things. This is not in the archaeologist toolbox. The teachers aren't teaching the archaeologist that they can do this kind of stuff. This is things that oh. Well, if you take this from this discipline, you can apply it here, and what kind of insights can you get from it? That kind of work, that kind of thinking, and that kind of innovation is just not – it's taking a long time for the archaeological community to adapt to kind of this race of technology, right? Yeah. Got to adapt. Mean, they're going to have to You're redo gonna a lot of work. You're going to get left behind, maybe. There it is. Oh, yeah. Okay, so this is another LiDAR scan that I did. There's a cave in the cliff below Serpent Mound. If you go to Serpent Mound, you take the hiking trail down below the cliff. There's a cave there. And I scanned this in about a minute or two using my iPhone. And you create a 3D model. You can spin it around in all kinds of dimensions. And this is what you get. Okay, now what's important? Interesting about this little cave, people have wondered about this thing. It's not very deep, maybe about 12 feet deep. It kind of looks really circular, almost as if somebody tried to dig into it's the been, mound. It's been worked. Right? Or dig into the cliff. It's been worked. Well, you'll notice that there's a fissure that runs right through the center of it. Now, in many Native uh, American cultures, particularly in the Southwest, they have oral traditions of... The people emerging out of the rock. The it came people, out of the Zuni, well, that's, the but they also have traditions of 
people, uh, women, going to caves that have these kinds of fissures because they call them they call them birthing caves. To give birth. And it could be that this is some kind of birthing cave, or it could be from another one of these traditions of you know uh, that people emerged from the fissure. We don't really know. But this is another one of these things that is this related to the archaeology there? Perhaps. Has anybody studied it? No, of course they haven't. (laughs) Right? That's so wild. Okay, so, you know, and and, and here's the thing about the bottom of the cliff. I pointed this out many years ago in, in one of these management plan meetings. If you really want to understand the time scale of Serpent Mound, we have the time capsule at the bottom of the cliff. There has been incessant erosion taking place from the dawn of time and the cliffs are eroding and eroding and eroding and if you go to serpent mound at the bottom of the cliff there's this giant tailing erosion pile at the base of the cliff mm-hmm. okay if you really want to understand the time scale of serpent mound dig a trench in that tailings pile all the way to the base of the cliff and get your time scale because it's all right there right right you, if you really want to understand what's going on there, that's how you begin to build the base of knowledge. I remember uh, watching an online presentation uh, from a professor, uh, one of the, I think, uh, University of Arizona, at Harvard. She was invited to go and give this lecture at Harvard. She was doing archaeological work down in the Yucatan Peninsula. Okay. And she was saying, you know, after all these years of archaeology down there, they didn't have real good sequence of carbon dating for the timeline of those areas. And so they did a specific dig just to determine what the sequence of timing was. So they went to several different sites and they did this dig. And it was like a giant inverted pyramid they dug down more than 30 meters oh until they hit base rock, and they got a full sequence of carbon dates for several different sites in the Yucatan Peninsula so they could begin to understand what the true timeline was. Absolutely nothing like that has ever been done in Ohio, not at Serpent Mound, not at any other site. There is nothing Mexico like what they're doing. Mexico is very advanced. Like, they have come leaps and bounds ahead. That's right. They've got a lot of very open-minded yeah. archaeologists. And so, you know, you go to Europe. The Germans are using all the sophisticated, you know, uh, magnetometer technology. And they're doing, you know, Graham showed that they're doing all the sophisticated stuff, even in Indonesia. Yeah. yeah. And, you, you yeah. Know, and, then, and people are doing stuff in Mexico. And, you know, and in Ohio. Chilola. Zero. Zip. Nothing. <laughs> it's it's like a black hole of That's knowledge. That's weird. And we've got some of the most advanced sites in North America. Yeah. It, it, right here in our yeah. own backyard. But I mean, it's strange as I've gotten older of thinking that and, the and way I used to view here's America. The, here's what really, here's what the situation is. As okay. far as history. Archaeology in the United States has shifted in the past, uh, let's say from 1970 to now. In For most of the 20th century up until about <clears> 1970, most of the archaeology was d- being done through university programs. Right. And, you know, they were getting grants from the government to do this kind of work. But in the 1970s, that all changed. With the rise of private corporate archaeology, uh, they call that cultural resource management. 
So okay. cultural resource management companies began to be set up and that get contracts by the government to, you know, like when the Department of Transportation builds a freeway, then they hire a cultural resource management company to come in and do that work. Or a developer of a place will hire a, a cultural resource right. management firm to come in and they'll do that. But the thing about that is, is that those reports, if they're not done for the federal government, are all go- given to private entities and that disappears into a black hole. It's not available for the public unless you're a professional archaeologist, card-carrying archaeologist, and they're not really telling the public about any of this stuff. There's mountains and mountains and mountains of reports that have been done in CRM archaeology that the public knows nothing about. And it's an ongoing issue. And over time, more of the archaeological work is being done by CRM companies and less and less and less done by university uh, company, you know, university programs to the point where now in Ohio, I think we're down to just two archaeology programs at universities. Most of the universities have gotten rid of their archaeology programs. Whoa. Indiana University, Jeez. which partnered with Romaine on doing work at Serpent Mound, they just announced uh, this summer uh, that their archaeology program is gone. No, Whoa. completely gone. They had one of the premier archaeological programs in the Midwest, the Glenn A. Black Lab that has been around since the 1930s, uh, gone, done. No more archaeology in Indiana University. So what is happening is I don't understand. publicly accessible archaeology is dramatically shrinking and going in the hands of private corporate archaeology. Okay? So it's the same thing I said. It's being you know, contracted out. Contract. Ohio History Co- Connection contracts with a private CRM firm to do a magnetometer survey of Serpent Mound. It goes into their private archives, not accessible to the public. So nobody's sharing anymore. Well, unless you're in the club. Right. right? you got to be... Get your professional archaeological degree and certificate, then you might get permission to look at it. Well, and if you tow the line. Yeah. So if you're in the Midwest, being an archaeology student... If you want to work in much the area that you grew up in, in your own backyard, there's not a lot of opportunities for you right yeah, now. Now I know there's one guy right now that in, interned as a high school student at the at National Park Service, uh, Hopewell Culture Park, and he has gone on to the University of Michigan. He's working on getting his Ph.D. right now, and he's doing it around Hopewell archaeology. He might be the only guy in this generation that produces an archaeologist that wants to work on Hopewell stuff. Because wow. nobody be cool. else is doing it. That'd be cool. I don't think there's a single archaeological program in Ohio that is focused on doing Hopa archaeology. What about OSU? OSU, uh, I think Dr. Rob Cook, his, his uh, specialty is on Fort Ancient. He doesn't really do Hopa stuff. But he, so he's the last guy, you know, sort of standing. Uh, down at uh, University of Cincinnati, there is a, they are doing a little bit here and there, uh, but not very much. Sad to hear. That's very disheartening. So you have the National Park Service, who has government-hired archaeologists that are doing work, and then, you know, maybe a little bit here or there, and CRM firms. That's it. 
So the public's not going to find out anything going forward. Well, every so often, What's every 20 years or so, they have a Hopewell conference that, you know, these people get together and they share some of the stuff. Uh, there was a Hopewell conference about three or four years ago um, that I attended, and they put out two books of edited stuff from that. But, yeah, it's you know, it comes every generation or so. Yeah, that's so wild. So yeah, it's, it's like sad. not a, a continuity of information stream. It's it's very much like it, conference every five years. Yeah, it it's doesn't, a lot of time in between. And, and that I mean they're connecting. holding they're holding more regular conferences. You know, <clears throat> not specific to Hopewell, but general you know American archaeology conferences. And you might find a Hopewell paper here and there, but most of that stuff is in you know journals that if you want to access that stuff online if you're a private researcher you know it'll cost you 58 dollars to download an article you know because uh, because nope. there's like uh, a monopoly on scientific you know uh, publication there's only just a couple of scientific uh you know companies yeah. that yeah. publish that stuff and you know that's why there was that uh you know site in russia that went up where somebody at a university downloaded you know several hundred thousand scientific papers and put them up in Russia because they don't have an information blockade. You know, over here, it's all copyright. They'll sue you if you, you know, you know, put any of that stuff up online digitally. Right. right so right. and so they there's sort of like an information blockade. If you're not in the club, you don't get access to it. If you're not in the club, it costs you too much money to access. So you never get the information. Right. Either way, you're blocked if you're not. in Right. It. Yeah. That's interesting. So, yeah, that's just the state of the what we deal with, you know. Well, I'm hoping we can raise some awareness and get people that even, you know, for myself, I didn't know about a lot of this stuff till like 2013. I knew about Serpent Mound. Yeah. I knew about some burial mounds, uh, Shrum Mound in Columbus that I, I visited going back to probably like 2008. But, you know, I thought these were kind of these separate oddities that you found i had no clue until really like 2013 of how massive and how many structures there were so for me that's into this stuff by that point i had been to chaco canyon i had been to chichen itza i had been to tulum you go to those places and they have books they have all kinds of material educational for the public you know little guidebooks and stuff we grew up a school we didn't take a field trip to serpent mound we didn't take a field trip to newark we didn't learn anything about our history so in school at all you mentioned shrum mound here in columbus yeah that's owned by the ohio history connection yeah excavated by them that was another group of women too results you got to go back into uh you know their journal from about you know, 70, 80 years ago to find anything out about it. Right. Yeah, it's a real mystery. That's where they have the little Adina pipe. The I haven't uh, been to Shrum Mound in years. Do they even have an so they, they cut sign? down all the trees? I know they cut down all the trees, and but they have uh, just that. Uh, there's no building, just the historic marker, right? Yeah, and then they have that uh, stone gate with the little right. Adina pipe guy. Yeah, and it, where it has a little that was memorial. All built like 100 years that was ago. forever ago, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But now it's just ago. all surrounded uh, by condos yeah. and apartments and the and the <clears throat> giant quarry, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, well, guys, we're yeah. approaching four-hour episode here. <laughs> I, I, wow. I, I don't know if there's any more slides in here. There might be one I think or two. That, I think that might be might be it. I think that's okay. it. Okay, one yeah. more. I'm clicking. I'm clicking. No, yep. that might be it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I think we covered plenty of stuff. <laughs> 
And, that was and great. again, and that was still so more to go. Know, my my work is really scratching the surface, but I'm trying my best to try to piece together what information has been out there, right? And yeah. trying to you know trying yeah. to understand it as best we can. And you're not trying to, and we aren't either. We're not trying to pick a fight with any group out there. No, my just want answers. Whole goal is That's to right. I want to understand. Your perspective, Graham's perspective, OHC's per- I really just want to know. I genuinely am not up here trying to, you know, harm anyone or talk bad about anyone. Exactly. Or, or I just want to know. And That's the right. fact that this is in our backyard and it's so almost impossible to really get a clear cut information. And, and I've looked into this stuff clearly, not in the, in the way that Jeff has, but I've done a bit of, of research and it is really hard to find information. Yeah. And that's something we're hoping to change uh, that hopefully we can contribute to. And, and I'll have anybody on this show to chat. And I think it'd be incredible to have a giant Ohio archaeology debate that <laughs> good luck with that. We would Town hall. love to host It'll end that. up being something like uh, Hancock. You know, he's challenging uh, you know, these Watts. criticisms <laughs> of him from the archaeological community, and no one will debate him on Joe Rogan's show. So they yep. won't do it. They won't do it. Yeah. Well, they. It's probably a reason why. If you can't, you know, refute the work, then again, like I said earlier, you criticize from some other angle. Yeah. You know, you right. Yep. Turn the fight a different way, but yeah. But yeah, again, I'm not an archaeologist. Right. I'm just a guy that has questions about the origins of these things. When I go and see these things, I have questions, and I just want them answered. Right. Yeah. So I take it upon myself to try to find those answers. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and I encourage everybody to do that. Yeah. Right. You know, like there are so many many archaeological uh, archaeological sites prehistoric in the United States that still exist, and virtually nothing is being written about them, you know, scratching the surface, lots more studies. People want to go out there, find the answers on your own, do the digging, just like I did, you know. Um, yeah. It can be done. Yeah. It can be done. Yeah. Well, this has been incredible. Yeah. I don't know about you, Bob, but I'm, I'm what good. an episode. We've had an incredible week. Yeah. We've had been, uh, some great Cryptids time. of the Corn you, in you've studio. Been on, you've been Jeff. on my tour before, yes, right? Yes, yes. Uh, of Serpent Mount. Uh, what I always tell everybody at the end of that is you now know more than 99% of everybody else. Right. Yes. Right. So and, my in brain a, in is sitting full just, of information yeah, right now. Yeah. We can't go any longer, <laughs> but yeah. Oh man! I want to read the book when it comes out. Yeah, so that'll oh, be I can't wait for that'll be next that year. But the my uh, you know ancient monuments expanded edition will be out before that. So. Yes, and that too. I want that as well. So that brings. Hey, where can we find you? Yeah. Uh, so what do you you got some you can, stuff you can, coming up? You can get a hold of me through serpentmound.org. Um, that's the Friends of Serpent Mound's face, uh, web page. Okay. We have a Facebook page. You can go to Friends of Serpent Mound on Facebook and get a hold of me through there. Okay. Um, again, you mentioned I have a talk tomorrow, but I do also have a lecture upcoming at the Pickaway County Historical Society in mid-January. Check them out for details. Um, it'll be a talk about the ancient monument stuff specific to Circleville, and uh, they asked me to talk about um, the alligator mound oh, for some in reason Granville. in Granville. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to talk about the material that I found in there. And I'm going to tell everybody how the alligator mound really got its name. Okay. Because for the last 25 years, 
the Ohio Historical Society has been telling everybody a completely fabricated story. And so uh, the documents I found, uh, you know, in my work for this book tell you what the real story is. Oh, cool. That'll be cool. Be looking out for that. We're in the books, just Amazon online. To actually, find. where will actually uh, you can get it print on demand through Lulu.com. Lulu.com. Mm-hmm. Okay, awesome. Definitely will. Yeah. So Jeff has a talk. If you guys are in the Adams County area tomorrow, yeah, at uh, Serpent Mountain Star Knowledge Conference, the Winter Solstice event, you yeah. can see him live. At 11 a.m. tomorrow? Yeah. You better get going, man. you got to get some sleep, dude. <laughs> Two hours back home, right? <laughs> yeah. Thank uh, you very much. Again, yeah. we are The Strange Road. I'm Mikey. This is Bub. You can find us on all social media platforms at The Strange Road. Hit us up on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, we're on Twitter at The Strange Road. Bub is... At Bub Randley. And I'm Spy- at Spiral Mikey on Instagram. If you guys want to get shout me... Uh, Hit me up with a DM. You can probably get a hold of me a little better on the, our Strange Road Instagram page. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we'd love to hear what you th- thought about uh, the episode today yeah, and all of definitely. Jeff's information. And Thanks we for wanna, having me, guys. Yeah, man. 100%. Yeah, anytime. Yeah, we really appreciate it, Jeff. And as always... Uh, Every time I hang out with you, my head just feels like it's <laughs> literally going to come apart at the seams, uh, just filled with information. Is there anything else that you'd like to share or happy, any, anything at all? Everybody have a happy holiday. Yeah. Very good. We're approaching the winter solstice and Christmas, so yep. everybody out there, happy holidays from... Winter, winter solstice next week. Yep. Yes. Happy holidays, everyone. We're getting close, getting close to the winter solstice. So everybody take care. Much love. Um, this will be available probably next week on all the audio platforms, Spotify, Google, Apple. Uh, we're on Amazon Music. We're on Stitcher now. We're wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, adios. Thank you so much. See you guys.